0: Hi everyone! You are listening to Intersections in Public Service, the Walden Cooper Center's podcast made by UVA students and staff that takes a look at pressing issues in our community, how public servants address them, and what you can do to help. I'm your host, Claire Downey. This episode, I will be interviewing three UVA researchers, Jay Furman, Andres Clarins, and the Cooper Center's own, Bill Shobe, about a research paper that they have just published in the highly renowned scientific journal called Nature Climate Change. In their research, they explore variations and outcomes of how direct air capture and other carbon-reducing methods can be used on a global scale. Welcome to Intersections in Public Service. I'm really excited to have you guys on the podcast today, and I wanted to congratulate you on getting your research published in the journal Nature Climate Change. So would you mind introducing yourselves and telling me about your specific roles in the research paper?
1: Sure. My name is Andres Clarence. I'm a professor in engineering systems and environment. And I worked with the team to come up with the idea to do the work, and I... Helped Jay, who is the um, graduate student that did the bulk of the heavy lifting with this research, uh, think about his modeling work, his results, and uh, how to communicate them best.
2: Yeah, so I'm Jay Furman. As Andres mentioned, I'm one of um, his grad students. So I, yeah, I did most of the modeling I'm in, in consultation with some folks at uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab. Uh, the Joint Global Change Research Institute in College Park, Maryland. So I've been interested in climate change from a really young age. Um, I had a class with Andres when I was an undergrad, and you know it's been a real pleasure to you know get to be able to work with him and uh, work on this paper.
3: Uh, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. This is Bill Shobe. I'm an environmental economist uh, at UVA, and I. Um, direct the Center for Economic and Policy Studies at the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service. And I'm a professor of public policy in the Batten School. And I have a uh, long-standing interest in climate change and finding climate change solutions. And my interest in this paper has to do with uh, finding economically sensible ways of uh, achieving and encouraging Uh, uh, extraction of CO2 from the atmosphere.
0: Why is it important to be published in a highly renowned climate change journal?
3: The the importance of publishing in journals is that there's a process for evaluating research and making sure that uh, the research is done in a way that's consistent with the best uh, scientific methods, and to make sure that the methods that are being used are current, and that the research is novel, hasn't been published before. Applying for publication in a in a major journal and going through the peer review process uh, not only makes sure that the work is of good quality, but uh, also helps improve research because the peer reviewers will make comments and recommendations about how to improve the, the research that's published. And making the research public allows other people to comment and follow up with their own research. So this system of peer-reviewed publication is a way of uh, generating good new research and getting it out for others to evaluate and then build on top of.
0: So could you summarize the findings of your research paper?
2: Starting out, this director capture technology was thought to be like very, very expensive, you know, too expensive to really ever be viable before the end of the century. But in recent years, there have been several kind of studies and, and commercial companies that have come out and said, okay, wait a minute, it's that's actually way cheaper than we first thought. And so what we found was that um, this director capture technology could actually begin to play a pretty large role, provided that we put policies in place that make it such that it's not just free to emit carbon to the atmosphere. Correspondingly, there would be some policies in place to uh, actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere to offset emissions from other you know, difficult to decarbonize sectors. And so we found that you know, even though that there could be this large role for DAC, it still comes with these fairly large trade-offs.
0: Just to give a little background, direct air capture technology, also known as DOC, essentially pulls carbon units out of the atmosphere to either be stored underground or reused. If you haven't heard of direct air capture before, that's because it has yet to be implemented broadly to help fight climate change.
1: If, if, if we're counting on these technologies being available and not having significant trade-offs, um, then we, we really need to be confident because the stakes are, are incredibly high. And so we wanted to understand what the, what the consequences of relying on direct air capture for solving the climate crisis. And, and what we found are that you know, there are all these other side effects of, of relying on this, and, and we need to have a conversation about those now.
0: So what about your paper makes your specific perspective on your research unique
3: the, the real importance of our particular paper is the emphasis on trade-offs we want to make sure that we're doing the accounting right so that we understand uh, the the implications of using negative emissions on, water supply on the need for energy resources on land availability so for example if you think about um, uh, bioenergy as a way of extracting co2 from the atmosphere you grow a lot of crops and then you burn them and sequester the carbon well to grow a lot of crops You need land, you need water, you need fertilizer. And if you're going to do a lot of bioenergy prospecting for CO2, you're going to be making land more scarce for other things. And you're going to be using a lot of fertilizer, which may have implications for for water quality. So our work is really about the trade-offs. How do we think about, uh, as we do more and more of one of these ways of reducing CO2, uh, what costs does it impose elsewhere? Because anything we do is going to have opportunity costs, a cost of what we could do with those resources, for example, growing food instead of bioenergy crops. So we wanted to make sure that we were doing the accounting right and pointing to how we need to balance the need for water the need for land the need for fertilizer the need for energy in these different negative emission technologies
2: yeah just to kind of build off of that i think that one of the biggest contributions of our work was just showing or kind of quantifying basically you know what the magnitude of some of these trade-offs is because there's been a fair amount of modeling work that has you know, families like large, you know, deployments of negative emissions, um, including direct air capture. And they talk in a general sense about, you know, this is going to use a lot of energy and then bio CCS is going to use a lot of land, you know, but we kind of quantified, you know, the extent of these trade-offs. I think the other thing, you know, that we said is like, basically, you know, we, we need to like, kind of wake up as a society, like, you know, the the extent to which we're now relying on these future negative emissions is really just like it's it's crazy, um, you know. I don't think that you'll find a single you know person that works with this um, these types of models that doesn't think that climate change is a huge issue. But there is a finite amount of carbon that we can you know put in the atmosphere and and limit ourselves to you know whatever amount of warming that we you know it is we decide is acceptable. So whether that's one point five degrees or two degrees.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about negative emissions?
2: What negative emissions allow you to do as you think about that, like a bank account, is they allow you to kind of like overdraft that finite amount of carbon and then at some point in the future, um, you know, take it back out of the atmosphere. Um, And what we are, we're kind of trying to show is that like there are, you know, some of that, a lot of that have to be paid back with, with interest basically from and that there's going to be pretty large impacts from these negative emissions technologies themselves um, that haven't really been kind of discussed like front and center. There's actually, uh, you know, a number of different ways by which we could conceivably take CO2 out of the atmosphere, some of which, you know, we didn't really model in this paper yet. But, you know, the major ways that are kind of, you know, included in, in these big economic models so far, direct air capture um, reforestation which removes co2 from the atmosphere and then bioenergy with carbon capture and storage which takes up carbon from the atmosphere and bioenergy crops and then you burn them and then pump the co2 underground one of the other modeling groups that i've had the opportunity to kind of sit in on some of their um, presentations they talk about that there's no silver bullet there's not a single technology that's going to you know save us it has to be kind of a silver buckshot approach because all of these approaches have trade-offs and so the idea behind like kind of taking a, a bunch of technologies a whole suite of them um, and kind of incentivizing all of them is that maybe the the trade-offs of each individual technology won't become you know unacceptable
0: so why do you think that these trade-offs aren't being talked about front and center essentially
1: because they're they're hard trade-offs They are trade-offs that involve there being significant changes to our economy. And so I think people are scared to really think about these in in meaningful ways.
0: Do you think that these types of conversations about trade-offs will inhibit people from trying to put policies in place or apply direct air capture technologies?
3: Well, I think it'll actually help us refine the way we design policies, the way we put them in place, because we need to have a clear understanding of the consequences of what we're doing. Uh, Good policy needs to be based on good data and good evidence. And uh, an effort to quantify the various effects of different technologies helps us balance Uh, helps us achieve balance in the portfolio of policies we put in place. The more expensive negative emissions technologies are, the more likely we are going to want to spend to reduce our emissions in the first place. Uh, And we want to think about how, as we implement more of one kind of negative emissions, we might cause consequences elsewhere, but we also need to think about having policies in place that, um, address the consequences of the negative emission technologies themselves. So, for example, if we were using bioenergy again, we think about fertilizer being used for bioenergy crops. We need to make sure we have the right uh, policies in place to protect water quality from fertilizer runoff. The good modeling helps us put in place better policy portfolios.
0: So, Bill, you worked on the economic side of this research? How do you think that people can be convinced to adopt more carbon-reducing technologies in their country, region, or locality from an economic perspective?
3: Well, from an economist's point of view, there there are two key issues here. One is uh, how to get people to take CO2 emissions into account as they make their daily choices. And so you hear economists all the time talking about putting a price on carbon either by having an emission market or by having a tax or fee on carbon emissions. Either one of those imposes a price on emitting carbon. And if there's a price on emitting carbon, that works its way back into the prices of consumer goods so that the things that cause the most carbon to be emitted have additional costs associated with them. So economists are very keen to have the right incentives flow back through the economy so that people take into account the effect on climate change of their daily activities. In the context of our own research on negative emissions, there's another challenge. It's sort of the opposite price problem. It's how do we compensate people for removing CO2 from the atmosphere? So there's this two-part problem that is very intriguing to economists, and that is giving the right incentives to reduce carbon and then giving the right incentives to people who might be willing to remove carbon from the atmosphere.
0: What do you all see as the biggest hurdle towards fighting climate change or making sure that we achieve negative carbon emission?
1: you know, the single most important thing we can do to fight climate change right now is to stop burning fossil fuels. That's pretty clear. And unfortunately for most people that want to take individual action, that's very difficult to do and expensive to do today, unless you can afford an electric car, unless you can afford solar panels on your roof and so on. So the easiest thing that individuals can do to try and fight climate change right now is to communicate with their elected officials and vote in ways that will support climate action because the urgency of the problem is enormous. We are seeing the consequences of climate change. So whether that's wildfires in California, whether it is hurricanes that are impacting places like Puerto Rico and Florida and Texas and North Carolina, whether it is extreme precipitation events, droughts, these things are having these ripple effects that are impacting us more and more, costing us uh, as a nation and as a, as a planet in, enormously. And um, so the, the urgency is, is really there. We, we cannot wait any longer. The, the biggest thing we can do right now is really try and have our voice be heard by our elected officials that this is important. This needs to be a priority.
3: What we need to be telling our elected representatives, is that we have to take uh, a multi-prong attack on climate change. We have to invest in new technology because the technologies we need to solve the problem can get much cheaper with the investment of new in new technology. We need to arrange for incentives so that people have incentive both to reduce their CO2 emissions and um, even extract CO2 emissions from the atmosphere. So we need we need investment in new knowledge. We need policies that give the right incentives. And so as people think about the things they want to support in terms of policy, they need to think about getting the right pieces in place. From, from our point of view as researchers in this area, it's, it's super important to keep in mind that that part of the concern people have is that it will be costly to address climate change. So it's incumbent on us to try to find the most effective and uh, least cost solutions to getting there. The lower the cost of getting there, easier it is for us to make the political choice of addressing the problem.
2: Um, Just to kind of build on that, I think that, you know, the one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, there's... uh, there's a cost to doing nothing, right? Like, you know, you can talk about, okay, it's going to be really expensive to reduce our emissions. But, you know, if we do nothing, then there's a cost to that. And it might be, you know, in the future, but you can see the magnitude of the cost that we're facing now. And it's just, what is the cost of a, you know, a wildfire? What's the cost of a hurricane that's stronger than it might have otherwise been? You know, and then you add rising sea levels on top of that. And that is a direct result of our not taking action on on this issue.
3: And, you know, the costs are not distributed evenly. It's pretty clear that the costs fall most heavily on the most disadvantaged. And it's really important that we keep in mind who gets hurt the most. And the people who get hurt the most are people in lower income countries who have um, less capacity for protecting themselves from the worst consequences of climate change. So there's a really important fairness question that we have to address. Every time we emit a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, we're imposing costs on other people. And those costs are being distributed in a very uneven way so that people in hotter climates, in what we often call the global south, uh, are harmed much more than people in developed countries. And yet people in developed countries are emitting more uh, CO2. And so we need to think about the unequal distribution of the costs and benefits as well.
1: That's a good point. And I would just, I would just say one more thing. I think that there are, there are two really prevalent myths about climate change that um, we've talked about now that are important to point out in the context of our paper. So the first is that it's too expensive to decarbonize, that it's going to have in impacts on our economy that are uh, too too big to bear. Uh, but I think Bill's spoken a little bit to um, the fact that in, in, in terms of uh, Decarbonizing our power grid, there are now alternatives that are um, are really cost competitive and that's why you see moves like what Dominion is doing um, pivoting into uh, renewable energy in, a, in a, at a very incredible pace, um, but I think it's important as we look at the suite of things we could do to 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 have a full cost accounting and that's what we were trying to do with these negative emissions is understand what the true costs are so that we can we can weigh those against the do nothing option, which, as we discussed, you know, we don't think it's a great that's a great path. but we also wanna understand what the what the you know, reliance on negative emissions technologies, what that might cost as well. And then the second myth is the myth that we all need to be doing more as individuals. And I just wanna emphasize again, it's been discussed, but these are systemic problems. People are not gonna buy direct air capture machines and put them in their house. People are not going to plant forests at a scale that is going to have climate impact. Um, But people need to understand that for, you know, for us to solve climate change, we need to work together and come up with, with plans that are gonna address some of these systematic issues.
0: As Jay said earlier in this episode, direct air capture is not a silver bullet for solving the global climate crisis. We need to take a multi-pronged approach in order to balance out the trade-offs of various types of carbon reduction. As urgency for solutions to fight climate change grows, so does the need for implementing and incentivizing policies. But policy does not get passed in a vacuum. The best thing for anyone to do to help fight climate change is leveraging the power of a vote. One does not have to be a scientist or researcher to make a difference. To read the research publication touched on this episode, go to www.nature.com/nclimate/. Thanks for listening to Intersection of Public Service. This episode was made in partnership with the Center for Economic Policy Studies, and I want to give another special thanks and congratulations to Jay Furman, Andre's Clarence, and Bill Shaw for getting their research published.